Hello, this is the Global News Podcast from the BBC World Service with reports and analysis from across the world. The latest news seven days a week. BBC World Service podcasts are supported by advertising. How can AI solve your business challenges? What's the best way to lead a new sustainability strategy? Staying ahead in your career isn't about knowing the answers. It's about finding them. Learn how to find the answers you need by studying online with London Business School's world-class faculty and industry experts. Search LBS online today. Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. The Global Story with smart takes and fresh perspectives on one big news story every Monday to Friday from the BBC World Service. Search for The Global Story wherever you get your BBC podcasts to find out more. You're listening to The Global News Podcast from the BBC World Service. Hello, I'm Oliver Conway. We are recording this at 14 hours GMT on Thursday, the 29th of February. In his State of the Nation address ahead of elections next month, President Putin says Russia has the upper hand in Ukraine. Hamas health officials say more than 30,000 Palestinians have been killed in Israel's military offensive in Gaza. And South Korean doctors refuse to return to work despite the threat of possible arrest. Also in the podcast, France moves a step closer to becoming the first country to enshrine the right to abortion in its constitution. And... I'm a leap year baby and I'm always amazed how many people don't know really what it is. They they kind of know it's that weird extra day you get every few years, but everyone's always quite, wow, I've never met a leap year baby before. The people who can only celebrate their birthday once every four years. But first, with Russia's invasion of Ukraine now into its third year, President Putin has said his forces have the upper hand. In his State of the Nation speech ahead of elections next month, he claimed most Russians backed what he called the war in eastern Ukraine. But after the French president recently refused to rule out the deployment of Western troops to Ukraine, the Russian leader had this warning. They're talking about the possibility of sending NATO military contingents to Ukraine. But we remember the fate of those who once sent their contingents to our country. Now the consequences for possible interventionists will be much more tragic. And they should also understand that what they're doing now, trying to scare the whole world, it does risk a conflict with nuclear weapons, which means the destruction of civilization. Don't they understand this? Well, our Russia editor Steve Rosenberg was at the Parliament building for President Putin's speech and gave me his assessment. Keep in mind, right, that there's a presidential election coming up in two weeks' time, an election, of course, which is being run according to the Kremlin's rules. But that's why this address today was part campaign speech, 
part state of the nation and state of the world, I think, in the eyes of Vladimir Putin. So we had all kinds of messaging going on. We had threats and warnings to the West. And we had President Putin telling his people that Russia was stronger, that the economy was doing well. And he was promising that, you know, life was going to get better in this country. He was talking about schools will be repaired. He was talking about ecology, environmental matters. You name it, he spoke about it and painted a picture of a Russia that was going to be a much better place. Do keep in mind, though, that this is a president who's been in power in Russia for nearly a quarter of a century. But he's still telling his people that you know, stick with him and life will get better. You mentioned those threats to the West. Mr Putin used the word nuclear, as we heard a little earlier. There's also a report in the Financial Times today which says leaked files show Russia has a low bar for the use of tactical nuclear weapons. Should we be getting more worried? I think we have to be a bit cautious, right? I think Vladimir Putin in those comments was responding, it seems to me, to comments made by President Macron recently, who did not rule out sending troops to Ukraine. But there is no suggestion yet that that's going to happen, and certainly no suggestion on a pan-NATO level that NATO is about to put boots on the ground in Ukraine. But responding to those comments, I think this was a uh, not-so-subtle hint from the Kremlin leader that should that happen, Russia will see that as a threat, as a major threat to its national security, and just reminding Western nations that Russia has a whole array of weaponry that it would be prepared to use. And did he sound more confident than before, given the recent successes Russia has had in some parts of the battlefield? Well, I think going back over the last few months, he sounded increasingly confident, especially since the failure of the Ukrainian counteroffensive last year. You know, every time Vladimir Putin makes a speech on television, he seems more confident that at some point Russia is going to emerge victorious from this war. Steve Rosenberg in Moscow. The number of people killed in the war between Hamas and Israel is now well into the tens of thousands. About 1,200 died in southern Israel in the brutal surprise attack by Hamas, along with a similar number of Palestinian fighters. Others have been killed on the Israel-Lebanon border as well as in the occupied West Bank. But the vast majority, more than 30,000 according to the Hamas health ministry, have died in Gaza, where Israel says it's trying to wipe out terrorists. The latest incident in the Palestinian territory reportedly killed dozens of people waiting for food aid, as I heard from our Jerusalem correspondent, Yolande Nell. Details still emerging about this at the moment, and there are some graphic videos that have been posted on social media that show emptied aid lorries and a donkey cart apparently loaded up with dead bodies. And a journalist who was at the scene told the BBC that early this morning, aid lorries were finally able to enter into this part of northern Gaza and that there were big crowds that gathered there waiting for the supplies to arrive, things like bags of flour. As people made their way away from the scene with whatever they'd managed, to get from the aid lorries the witness saying that Israeli tanks opened fire and that as well as something like 70 people having been killed and they were taken to various hospitals in the north of the Gaza Strip. There were also many more people who were injured as well. Now, we've just had the Israeli military giving an initial response saying that it has no knowledge of shelling in this area at the time. Now, that attack comes as the health ministry in Gaza said that the total number of Palestinians killed in the territory has now passed 30,000. This comes in response to the Hamas massacre of the 7th of October. And Israel said it was trying to basically take out Hamas fighters 
in Gaza. Do we know how many of those are among the dead? The breakdown that we get from the data from the Hamas-run health ministry, it's the only official source really for casualties in Gaza, suggests that most of those who have been killed are either women or children. Now, when we've asked the Israeli military about how it views the figures, it's told the BBC that the number of terrorists killed stands at approximately 10,000. That's the figure that we were given. I have to say, we do believe that the actual number of people who have been killed as a result of the war is likely to be much higher because the way that these figures are counted, they don't include dead people whose bodies are still stuck under the rubble of buildings. And it's believed that there are thousands of those in Gaza. There are thousands of people who are still officially just missing. And of course, there are fears that it could get worse if Israel proceeds with an operation on Rafah, where more than half of the population have now sought refuge from the fighting elsewhere in Gaza. Yeah, and that's what's drawn so many warnings from the international community, from aid agencies pointing out that the majority of the population of Gaza is now squeezed down into this very small area on the border with Egypt. Israel has been insisting that uh, military operations must ultimately go into Rafah, that plans have been drawn up for that without revealing what those were. But that does really add to the kind of pressure at the moment on these efforts to try to get some kind of at least a longer-term truce agreed. And what we're hearing is there's still, of course, a big gap between the two sides. The Qatari mediator saying there's not been a breakthrough yet. Yoland Nell in Jerusalem. And since we spoke to Yoland, we've had an update on that incident uh, as people were waiting for aid on the edge of Gaza City. Palestinian officials say the number who died is now more than 100, while an Israeli military source says that Israeli troops who are coordinating the entry of aid trucks opened fire at the crowd, thinking there was a threat. An Israeli government spokesman called it a tragedy, saying it was triggered by a surging crowd. At some point, the trucks were overwhelmed and the people driving the trucks, Gazan civilian drivers, ploughed into the crowds of people, killing, my understanding is, tens of people. That was Avi Hyman talking to reporters. Despite the threat of possible arrest if they don't end their strike by today, doctors in South Korea are refusing to go back to work. The strike involving nearly 10,000 junior doctors has caused problems in hospitals, with even caesarean sections being postponed. Last week, a woman died after seven hospitals reportedly refused to treat her for a cardiac arrest. The head of one patient association said the striking doctors were, quote, worse than organised criminals. Our sole correspondent, Jean McKenzie, has been looking into the dispute. This is a fierce showdown, with thousands of angry hospital doctors on one side and the government on the other. On the surface, the doctors have walked out over plans to increase the numbers within their ranks. But their real anger stems from feeling overworked, underpaid and ignored. Ryu Okada is one of the thousands of junior doctors who walked out of his job last week. It's been a really hard time because we work really hard on over 100 hours a week and we paid just £1,200 a month. In some departments, they only have five minutes of lunchtime. It's insane. But why does it matter if there are more doctors? More doctors surely can't be a bad thing. 
지금 상태는 한국은 이제 행위별 수가제라는 걸 해요. 영국은 어제. Unlike the UK, South Korean doctors are paid per procedure. If there are more doctors and competition heats up, they will see patients only for profit, even making up illnesses or treatments. 그러니까 없는 병도 만들어낸다거나. These arguments aren't winning the public over. With Korea's population aging rapidly, people want more doctors on hand. But the doctors argue this won't fix the shortages being seen in rural areas and in emergency care. The problem is that too many doctors are opting to work in the more lucrative field of cosmetic surgery, and the private medical system here needs an overhaul, they say. I'd come to one of the largest, most famous hospitals in Seoul, the Severance Hospital. These teaching hospitals rely heavily on junior doctors. They make up as much as 40% of the medical staff. Most of the hospital appears to be functioning. It's teeming with people, as usual, here for cancer treatment and other long-term conditions. It's the emergency rooms that are really feeling the shortages. Operations capacity has dropped significantly. Mrs. Lee is in her 70s and has colon cancer, and she's here today for treatment. It's not been affected by the walkout, she says, but she's worried that other doctors might walk out next. Where we live, outside the city, there are no doctors anymore, her husband tells me. Do you support the doctors in this strike? In our view, the doctors are being too selfish. They have really taken the public hostage. Many operations and appointments have been postponed while this dispute drags on, leaving nursing staff to pick up the extra work. As the head of Korea's nursing association, Tak Yong-ran, explains. Nurses are being forced to do the doctor's jobs, and we don't have the legal protections to do so. Our workloads are heavy, and it's making us anxious. The showdown has reached new heights. The government has given doctors until the end of Thursday to return to work. Those who don't will be stripped of their medical licenses and could even be arrested, it says. Are you prepared to be arrested or to lose your license over this? I'm prepared to lose my license or arrested. I just thought that this job and medical system is broken. If government stick to this policy, the Korean medical system will collapse. It has no future. A report from South Korea by Jean McKenzie. It seems video game makers are not immune to the wave of layoffs seen recently in the global tech industry. Earlier this year, Microsoft announced it was cutting nearly 2,000 people, or 8% of staff, from its gaming division. On Tuesday, Sony said it was losing 8% of its PlayStation employees. Yesterday, the Californian company Electronic Arts announced it was axing 5% of its workers. So what's going on? Tom Gherkin is our technology reporter. Inflation is high, interest rates are high, and what that means is a lot of these game companies have a lot of debt, and so they have to spend more than they used to in order to service it. But there are other things going on as well. A lot of these big game companies have just released big video games, and of course, once you've made a big video game, you need lots of people to make, but suddenly you don't need quite so many people anymore. And there's another big thing happening in gaming now where all of these services have subscriptions where you pay monthly fees for games rather than necessarily paying the big upfront 60 
70 80 dollars and because of that there is a change in the way that these companies are being financed so we're not going to see like a sudden drought of new games coming through No, although in 2023 we had this extraordinary amount of video games were released, so many games competing for best game of the year that huge titles like Starfield and Star Wars, their latest Jedi game, didn't even get mentioned in the nominations. So perhaps that might also explain what went on at EA, the layoffs coming and the cancellation of a big upcoming Star Wars game, possibly because, well, they made one and it didn't really do as well as they'd hoped. I mean, how is gaming doing as a whole compared to other parts of the entertainment industry, movies or or streaming services? Gaming is doing really well. This is the odd thing about all of it. It's just changing the direction of travel. It was growing and hiring as many people, which we're seeing in tech in general, to be honest. Now it seems to be moving towards efficiency. Gaming industry is still worth more than $200 billion. That is an inconceivable amount of money. It's going to grow by even more. Analysts projecting as much as $70 billion. And for context, that $70 billion it will grow by, that's more than the current size of the entire global music industry. So people who develop games shouldn't be unnecessarily worried it could all bounce back it almost certainly will bounce back but there is cause for concern for developers and that's because at the moment it's very expensive to borrow that means it's very expensive to start your own gaming company so if a lot of people have been laid off there might not necessarily be jobs for them to go to and it might not necessarily be viable for them to start their own company what that means is very talented people might end up leaving the gaming industry altogether and when it does come to a growth period again that talent might not be there anymore. Our technology reporter, Tom Gherkin. Still to come on the podcast, why Cuba is for the first time asking the World Food Programme to help provide milk for its children. For just as long as Hollywood has been Tinseltown, there have been suspicions about what lurks behind the glitz and glamour. And for a while, those suspicions grew into something much bigger and much darker. Are you a member of the Communist Party? Or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? I'm Una Chaplin, and from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service, this is Hollywood Exiles. It's about a battle for the political soul of America, and the battlefield was Hollywood. Search for Hollywood Exiles wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. France has moved a step closer to becoming the first country in the world to enshrine the right to an abortion in its constitution. The move was overwhelmingly approved by the Senate on Wednesday evening. Isabella Jewell reports. Votant 339, exprimé 317, pour 267, contre 50, le Sénat a adopté. The sound of applause in the French Senate after lawmakers voted overwhelmingly to make abortion a guaranteed freedom in France. 
Now the legislation has been passed in both houses, on Monday it will go before a joint session of Parliament, where it is expected to be approved by a three-fifths majority. S'il vous plaît, la parole est... La parole est à Monsieur le Ministre. Monsieur le Ministre. The French Justice Minister Eric Dupont-Moretti said it was a historic vote. Ce soir, le Sénat a écrit une nouvelle page du droit des femmes. This is a new page for women's rights. This vote is historic. We will be the first country in the world to write this freedom for women to do what they want with their bodies into the Constitution. It's a moment which has been widely celebrated across political divides in France. While there was a small gathering of anti-abortion protesters during the vote and 50 lawmakers voted against the bill, none of the country's major political parties represented in Parliament have questioned the rights to abortion. Je veux aujourd'hui que la force de ce message nous aide à changer notre constitution. The measure which was promised by President Emmanuel Macron last year on International Women's Day was triggered by the rollback in abortion rights in the United States. In 2022, the US Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, a 50-year-old ruling that had guaranteed women's access to pregnancy termination. Abortion has been legal in France since 1975. But now lawmakers are seeking to make it a guaranteed freedom in the Constitution so that future governments are unable to row back on access. Ahead of its rubber stamping on Monday, the bill is being celebrated as an unprecedented step forward for women's rights. Isabella Jewell. Tomorrow, Iran holds its first parliamentary election since the protests triggered by the death in police custody of Masa Amini in 2022. The unrest was described as the biggest challenge to the hardline Islamic authorities since the revolution. It was eventually put down, but demands for change remain, with many people planning to boycott Friday's vote as an act of protest. The Iranian government is now taking action to try to shore up turnout, as I heard from the BBC's Surush Negardari. One thing is that they're using state media and national TV to create enthusiasm and and to encourage people to vote. And uh, some people also notice that there's a leniency about how female presenters dress. And now you see female presenters with more colorful clothes and loose hijab, as they call it, trying to create a friendlier, uh, more democratic atmosphere. You also see on live TV debates with participants who freely express strong criticism of the establishment or the current government of President Brian Raisi. These are seen as signs that the government and the establishment is trying to encourage people to vote in a situation that uh, even a lower turnout than the record low 42% participation of last parliamentary election is expected. Some polls are saying around 38 to 40% this time. There are also people notice changes on the streets, apparently, the morality police who arrested Masa Amini and led to the protests, they are not that active nowadays in the weeks before the election. People see general leniency towards such issues, probably not to discourage the voters from voting and implying some changes maybe in the policy that will definitely be temporary. Yeah, I mean, how much opposition to the Islamic authorities remains and how much is on public display in Iran? Well, the opposition nowadays might not be seen in the form of protests on the streets because of the deadly crackdown and the level of control that exists by the authorities. But the opposition now shows itself on social media. People try to show their 
criticism and opposition in different ways. And how worried are the authorities by the fact that they haven't been able to stamp out this dissent, even if it's no longer seen on the streets? The authorities traditionally certainly use the election turnout as a sign of legitimacy and having national support amid all the problems that they have with neighbouring countries and, and with the Western powers. And they would like to have a high turnout and support from the public. But at the same time, they disqualified almost all moderate and reformist candidates for this election. So some people think that it does matter to them and they are worried about the turnout, but it's not the first priority now. The first priority is to have their own hardliner and conservative candidates, especially in the assembly of experts, which has the power to choose the next supreme leader and the current leader is 84 years old and reportedly ill. So the chances are that this assembly of experts will be tasked with choosing the next supreme leader. So that seems to be the priority, but they do worry about the turnout and they've been going out of their ways to encourage more voter turnout. Sarush Negar-Dari. Cuba is asking the World Food Programme to provide milk for its children for the first time since the UN agency was founded more than six decades ago. Liana Byrne got the details from our reporter, Stefania Gotze. Last month, we heard from one of the country's ministers saying that it was struggling to secure enough milk for children. There were particular delays in deliveries for those aged six months to two years, and one vulnerable group was children with chronic illnesses who could only receive about half of their normal allotment. Only three of Cuba's 15 provinces are actually producing enough milk to satisfy demand. But now we've heard from the UN's World Food Programme confirming that the Cuban government has approached it for assistance in providing milk to children, specifically powdered milk for those under seven. The Cuban government is yet to comment. And Stefania, milk is a fundamental part of Cuban's ration book system, isn't it? Yes, the ration book system was introduced after Fidel Castro's 1959 revolution, the idea being that the Cuban government would provide subsidised staples for all. But recently, it's been harder and harder to fulfill. The country is experiencing a crippling economic downturn and its government says that decades of US sanctions have prevented it from getting access to the basic foodstuffs Cubans need. So, of course, the US implemented a trade embargo in the late 1950s. It was known there as a blockade and it stops US businesses from conducting trade with Cuban interests. Critics, though, say blaming the sanctions isn't fair and it's actually mismanagement of the country's centralised economy that's the problem. Stefania Godser. Finally, for some people, today is a once-in-a-four-year chance to celebrate. Yes, happy birthday to all the Leaplings, people who were born in a leap year on the 29th of February. There are only about 5 million in the whole world. They include the Spanish Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez, the NASA astronaut Jack Lausmer and rapper Ja Rule. Susan Forbes is a British Leapling. She is 48 years old, but has only actually had 12 birthdays. It's quite often a, you know, tell us something interesting about yourself. And that is my go-to thing. Oh, I'm a leap year baby. And I'm always amazed how many people don't know really what it is. They, they kind of know it's that weird extra day you get every few years. But everyone's always quite, wow, I've never met a leap year baby before. Wow. Why do we have a leap year? Josh Tranter explains. 
Broadly speaking, we all know that a year is 365 days long, and every four years we put in an extra day, the 29th of February. But if you're anything like me, you didn't know why, outside of some vague notion that it has something to do with the moon. Turns out I was wrong, and it's actually Earth's orbit, which takes precisely 365.242 days to complete. Now, that fraction of a day might not sound like much, but clearly over time it adds up and it can throw entire seasons out of whack. We've been grappling with this for centuries. In ancient Rome, consuls and emperors were fond of putting their stamp on the calendar, and Julius Caesar added a leap year to the calendar to try and bring things into alignment with the solar year, and maybe to address farmers' complaints about snow in July. Our current system of leap years dates back to the 1500s, when Pope Gregory VIII added that we should skip leap years when the year is divisible by four, but confusingly not by 400. Most of us probably don't need to worry about that, though, as the next skipped leap year will be in 2100. Now, we do this because there's a little under a quarter of a day extra on the Earth's orbit, meaning that those little 0.008s of a day would add up over time, creating the same problem of summer weather in December. Now, you might be aware there are a few traditions around leap years, most of them regarding romance. The most well-known is that it's a day when women propose to men. If you've been waiting a while, today could be a good day to do it as well. British tradition dictates that any man who rejects a woman's proposal today owes her several pairs of fine gloves as compensation. The ancient Greeks, though, believed it was bad luck to get married on a leap day, so maybe think twice if you're planning on using it as an excuse to only celebrate your anniversary every four years. Josh Tranter. And that is all from us for now, but there'll be a new edition of the Global News Podcast very soon. This one was mixed by Callum McLean and produced by Oliver Burlow. Our editors, Karen Martin. I'm Oliver Conway. Until next time, goodbye. How can AI solve your business challenges? What's the best way to lead a new sustainability strategy? Staying ahead in your career isn't about knowing the answers, it's about finding them. Learn how to find the answers you need by studying online with London Business School's world-class faculty and industry experts. Search LBS online today. Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you